we're going to be talking about jury duty, um, how they are selected, bias injuries, and corruption injuries. And we also will be talking about the Chauvin trial that is currently ongoing. All of this we're hoping to tie into the broader idea of what is impartiality and what is neutrality and in like a political system that highlights and values those aspects of freedom so highly what does it mean in practice when we see that impartiality not actually be met when it comes to like the results of trials and the results of our criminal justice system but I figure to start it off um Chelsea have you gotten a jury duty summons yet I have not and honestly I feel like I'm never gonna get one I also I don't know how I haven't gotten one yet I don't know I feel like my mom has gotten multiple but yeah I'm not sure my mom has gotten one my dad has gotten one they both got out of it I don't know what they wrote but they just like wrote something about like I remember my mom saying, oh, maybe I should just put that I'm, I'm biased and then they won't let me on the trial. And I was like, mom, I think if like you could just put I'm biased and get out of jury duty, a lot of people would do that. You know how many people would be like, I'm, I'm not doing this. So many people. It's kind of interesting how it's like such a like almost like a hated part of like I, I grew up learning like oh if you're an American citizen like your obligation is to pay taxes and also go do jury duty but then I also grew up with the same like aura of like oh jury duty sucks like the trials suck people are trying to get out of it and I totally had that conversation with my mom where I was like I mean you want to get out of it by saying that you have a bias like think about all the people that know they have a bias and are not trying to get out of it and are going to be there on those stands and so I guess it, it did raise like a lot of questions on like wow like how are how is our criminal justice system impacted by jurors themselves and the people that ultimately are going to be making decisions on big cases and like how do they what's their relationship to the judges and the prosecutors and the defense and how is that going to play a role in our justice system so I'll pass it over to you to dive more into jury duty yeah and I think also I think a big possible hesitancy to it is um, knowing that you're possibly determining, you know, how the rest of somebody's life might go if you get something that big um, that you're a, ju- a juror for. So getting into jury duty, um, each district court rec- randomly selects citizen names from lists of registered voters and people with driver's license who live in that district. Next, the people selected complete a survey or questionnaire um, this is to see if they're qualified to serve. And then those who are deemed qualified are selected at random to appear for jury duty. So the point of that is to make it as impartial as possible so that there's not any um, preference of keeping or getting rid of people in that part of the decision process. The goal of this is to make sure that jurors represent a cross section of the community so that there's no regard or anything paid attention to for race, gender, national origin, age, or political affiliation, um, kind of getting just as random as possible. 
So a big part is that being summoned to jury duty, you know, I think, what is it, a little card in the mail that you'll get? Being summoned does not mean that you will serve on a jury because judges and attorneys are able to ask potential juries or jurors questions to see if they are suitable to serve on the jury. So these questions are often specific to the case. So the purpose of this process is to exclude people who may not be able to decide the case fairly and impartially. Um, in this step of the process, the judge and the attorneys have the power to select or reject juries based on their perceptions of whether that person can be impartial or will be impartial. The attorney and judge who question potential juries will have information about the case, and they may have their own judgments about who should or should not be on the case or who should or should not serve on the jury, and they have the power to make that call. So I, this just reminds me of shows like, um, oh, like Blacklist or um, How to Get Away with Murder or Scandal, where they have processes where a jury's called in and the attorneys are there and they're specifically asking questions of people um, to get them on their side, to say, okay, this person will make it easier for me to win the case or not even easier, it'll help. They will be able to be counted on to be on their side. And that's really, I think like one of the biggest points of asking questions is to say, well, will this juror vote in my favor? And that's, that's kind of where everybody gets to ask their questions that are geared towards gaining jurors. So that's also just interesting because like the whole point of that process is to make sure that people with biases aren't going into these. And so it just seems so hypocritical in a way to have attorneys or judges have that sole power to negotiate who's going to be a juror for a trial. Um, so it's really interesting. Like personally, I can't think of how I would ask questions to determine if someone was impartial especially because like, what does that mean if you're looking for people that you think are going to be sympathetic to your client and that are going to be on your boat? How do you, how do you reconcile those two things? It's hard to, it's hard to believe. Exactly. And from there, I mean, it would be, I guess, the difference of um, if you're on a case and it's something big, I mean, for an attorney who's trying to prove innocence, you might be um, looking for one type of juror and for somebody who's um, defending someone else or anything like that, um, you are looking for a completely different type of juror. And some biases are what you would generally get dismissed for. They may want those biases um, in order to win their favor. So from here, attorneys can exclude or reject a certain number of potential jurors and they don't have to give a reason why. They don't have to say, I don't like the way that they phrase their sentence. I think they're racist. I don't like their bias towards, they don't have to give a reason. They can just say, we don't want this person. Um, we're excluding or rejecting them. And if the judge says it's okay, it's okay. Criminal trials and civil trials are trials that are heard by juries. So in a case, the judge determines what law is appropriate to be applied to a case and the jury is presented with the facts of the case during the proceedings. I think one way that we've kind of formulated some of our understandings around this is 
from a lot of popular culture where I think they they do kind of show that process. Even some of those highly popularized documentary docu-series, the kind of like that new like Netflix genre, um, I feel like they also, a lot of them have tackled that like jury impartiality concern um, because obviously, you know, our, our courts want to be guided by these principles, but then I think there's just so much evidence in practice um, where there isn't necessarily a way to make sure that those picking out the jurors are fully impartial, that jurors are totally impartial. Um, and so I think it sets up a really interesting predicament for our justice, uh, our justice system. So going off of that, our super amazing podcast queen, Anna Curran, did some research regarding the fairness of juries and pulled up quite a few articles, reports um, that point out various instances in which the selection of jurors um, was done in an often obviously racist manner. So one example of that is going to be in Tulsa County, where a district attorney came under fire for admitting a juror who explicitly stated she was racist. And it was for the trial of a Black man who was accused of attempting to rob a shoe store with a pistol. And while the district judge later excused her after quite a bit of turmoil, concern over that, the district attorney wasn't originally interested in excusing her. And that was really just up to this idea of, oh, they have the discretion to make those decisions. They have the discretion to say, okay, someone acknowledged they have strong racial prejudices, but they have the discretion to, I guess, separate that from bias, which is really interesting. I think that's totally a story that came to the news for a reason. And that's, you know, just one case. And that's one time that folks got attention onto that impartiality issue and in the issue of, of biased jury selection. But you can just imagine on even, you know, local levels, state levels, you know, what, what is happening on a broader scale? Um, because that might just be one case, but uh, there's also research that shows that racially biased jury selection is widespread. Um, and that is particularly in serious criminal cases and cases that involve capital punishment. People of color have been excused from jury service without clear appropriate reasons. And there is a trend of that occurring in cases in which the defendant is on death row. And so that also just kind of sets up a terrifying situation or vision of our criminal justice system. For example, one report by the Equal Justice Initiative, which did a study regarding illegal racial discrimination throughout the United States, they pointed out a couple different examples of that racially biased jury selections. Um, and in some places, it's extreme, such as Houston County, Alabama, where eight out of 10 African Americans qualified for jury service have been struck by prosecutors from death penalty cases. 
Um, I think it's really interesting that focus on the death penalty cases in particular. There has also been evidence of prosecutors removing Black people from jury service because of these arbitrary uh, distinctions, I guess, that were supposed to denote low intelligence. This report particularly says that if they wore eyeglasses, walked in a certain way, dyed their hair, any other reason, the courts could just strike them from jury service. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about early, Chelsea, is that there isn't really a ton of documentation on that decision making. Um, They talk in this report about how the research was done by interviewing citizens who were excluded from jury service and also reviewing hundreds of court documents and records. And obviously this isn't just something where someone is gonna be like, I made a racially biased decision in selecting this jury. But I think there's there's evidence in that process um, that might not just be visible until someone goes and does some of that really intensive research. So if judges and attorneys are able to pick jurors, what does that do for the lives of the people involved in the trial? And what does that do when it comes to the implications on like law or setting a precedence or that? I think we tend to make fun of jury duty and forget that so much of law is based on this idea of like, we're all interpreting the same set of rules and interpretations differ. And that makes it really important to pay attention to like, okay, yeah, like who's in the jury? Who is the judge? Who is the attorney or the prosecutor that is making those decisions? And how do we like as a community I don't know, improve that system? Can you? Some people are probably like, no, I don't know. That was a lot of rhetorical questions. So it goes both ways, but it also just depends on like what they look for, what they look at, what it is for. But honestly, I think that like as much as they look for specific qualities, biases, whatever that can play their hand better or help them play their hand better and like win a case, while they do that, like, I feel like there's a systemic lack of trust in Black individuals that the court system has that allows them to have this, you know, weird belief of low intelligence or allow them to not trust Black people to make decisions like that. And I, and I think it, um, it does create, like, giant and disproportionate discrepancies but I think there's also a large amount of people in the system that are black that are on trial and if you pull in black community members and individuals I think they have a concern that they won't have as many convictions if there are too many people that believe trust understand or sympathize empathize with a black person on trial. I can't imagine being on trial as a black person and looking and seeing that the people who are making that decision are all white or not, like none of them are black. Like if you're looking for a cross section and you're doing it to be as impartial as possible, then the ability to dismiss and reject jurors without 
reason or a specific cause that is stated, I feel like they have decided, okay, the system is allowed to be impartial up to a point. And this is where we stop. And I feel like impartiality then goes out the window. If you could cherry pick, I feel like they are cherry picking. They're just cherry picking from a smaller pool of people. That's all. Right? It's like you do a little like screening to be like, are they racist based on a survey? Which is in and of itself, like just a whole other concept because like, you know, race isn't just something that you, you don't just be racist or not be racist um, or, you know, be biased, not be biased. I think there's a lot of like complexities to that in general. And so it is really interesting that they're like, well, we'll do a survey that's random, but then we'll pick people from the survey, assuming that they're all impartial. It's just so interesting. Sometimes democracy doesn't make sense. Sometimes we have some deep, deep problems where you're just like, ah, ah, Um, and the courts are one of them. I think also just like the way that the courts have always been set up is often in the white person's favor. And so to have Black people making any type of decision, vote, et cetera, Mm -hmm. is not how our court system was built. The same court system that said, you know, you were what is it, three-fifths of a person? Mm-hmm. When that comes around, like, how are you supposed to trust that system, whether you're a juror or a person on trial? Yeah, like, how could we be expected to, like, sit in a trial and be like, this is fair when a constitution itself literally is not fair? <laughs> right. And I don't even know that it's about fairness as much as it's about I guess we don't expect the constitution or anything to be compassionate yeah as much as it's just to be not even inclusive but like recognizing people as people and why should one person have all the right to decide and another person have three-fifths right to decide like mm. but here we go into the Chauvin trial which began on March 29th 2021 and it is expected to continue for uh, at least a month, so at least four weeks. As we have seen online, um, like Jude and I both saw a tweet before this week that was like, why are we watching a trial? And why is there a long, lengthy, ongoing trial for a murder that we all watched? Um, and some of us have watched it multiple times. Um, and one that we've been hearing about for months. Why are we going through such a lengthy process? And it, I feel like it almost makes you question innocent until proven guilty because we all watched it happen. But going into this, eyewitnesses for the trial have included professional fighters. Um, and I think they have been consulted just on use of force. When do they use parts of their body? How do they use it? How forcefully do they use it? Those with phone recordings who have multiple recordings of the footage teenagers and children have been put on trial I believe anonymously there was an off-duty EMT that was put on trial I watched that one on CNN it was pretty emotional um we were sitting there just frustrated for her we were yelling at the judge and those questioning her just like leave her alone store employees have been have testified Floyd's girlfriend, um, paramedics, and also Floyd's brother, I believe, is set to um, testify. And I just want to say, like, in the eyewitness list, I guess, um, 
I feel like there are people that they're putting, such as his family members, that they're putting as witnesses in order to build credibility for Floyd. And I just want to mark that, like, that is something we shouldn't have to do. Like, that is something that people should be able to be inherently good. Just as you're innocent until proven guilty, you should be able to be inherently a good person until proven otherwise. And so there are these people that they're pulling in to talk about Floyd's character. And it's all to talk about that he's not just a black man who entered a grocery store with a possibly counterfeit bill, who also had substances in his system or had substance use or had um, prior convictions or whatever it was. He should still be a good person without other people having to tell you that he is or prove to you that he is a good person. Totally. I, I think that's like one of the most difficult things when people talk about court cases is like, we got to humanize them. And sometimes it's like, we have to humanize them because there is an assumption that as a black man, George Floyd was of a certain character and things happen justifiably. And then on the other hand, you know, you can also get folks who are going to humanize people that do pretty bad things um, like murder and other bad things that are much worse than having substances in your system or having a counterfeit $20 bill. What a scary prospect. Kind of along those lines, but a little bit tangential as I was even just reading an argument about how there had to be a police officer, a former police officer who was a use of force expert who took the video and walked through it frame by frame, pointing out where it was excessive force and where like, I guess a qualified, well-trained person would not have done that. And it was interesting because in this article, they were talking about how like he said the same thing that everyone else has said but the prosecution literally has to keep bringing people that say this use of force was wrong this use of force was too much this was violent because of what they call the goldilocks effect um which i guess is a phenomena where sometimes jurors just like don't like an expert witness or a witness for one reason or another so they just bring in as many different reinforcing opinions but with like different types of people to get that like holistic or or I guess to just try to to convince each of those jurors who might be on different ends of the political spectrum Uh, but I even just thought that was crazy like the idea that you have to just have someone over and over again keep reminding like hey this is what the trial is about and the prosecution has to keep saying this is what the trial was about we're going to humanize this person because, you know, obviously their murder has left a huge impression on this country and on its like race relations and its social relations in general. But it's just so interesting that those are two strategies that have to be employed um, in a trial, especially one that is as public and was videotaped like this. So now that we've talked about juries, we can connect this and say, they're humanizing and dehumanizing for the jury they're convincing the jury which is to say that there are people that have been picked on the jury who need to be convinced that this person was human and had and and is deserving of all the same processes 
And there are people who need to be convinced that Chauvin committed murder. Now, I definitely don't see as many things that are humanizing or dehumanizing uh, Derek Chauvin as much as I just, I feel like it's either or. And honestly, um, Jude is right there. There are multiple witnesses that they have brought and that are, they are bringing to testify about the use of force. Um, like I said, there was a professional fighter that came that testified. There have been testimonies from people who conducted training for police units, for military units, et cetera, to talk about the fact that those techniques are not taught to be used, um, that they encourage the use of the arm and using more of a headlock method if they do need to restrain or utilizing the arm if you do need to restrain by the neck and they don't necessarily encourage that type of restraint anyway. There are witnesses who have testified that uh, looking at the position that Floyd was in on the ground with handcuffs on, no further force was needed. And if it was needed, it should have been placed more so on the back or the legs, not on the neck. And it should not have taken that many police officers, one, to restrain him, which is to say that at one, at, at one point they were no longer restraining, right? They were they were holding him down. And two, that no matter what profession you're in, but especially as a public servant, it is your job to listen, to help. And what of that entire event was helpful, right? So like Jude said, there are multiple witnesses that have been brought in just to convince the jury, to convince attorneys, convince the judge of reinforcing different facts and opinions, whether it's about Floyd, about Chauvin, about the use of force. Um, one big one is about the way he died. There have been multiple doctors brought in, and Dr. Bradford Langenfield testified that Floyd had substances in his system um, that could have aided in his death. Uh, he had the opinion that Floyd died from, I believe, apoxia and uh, like asphyxiation, so uh, lack of oxygen um, and like cutting off the airway, um, but that the substances, I believe it listed possibly fentanyl within his system could have aided in um, that asphyxia. And then I believe on the 9th, April 9th, Dr. Lindsay Thomas testified that Floyd died as a result of asphyxia and was in agreement with um, a pulmonologist and another forensic medicine specialist that this was the cause of death and it was from um, blockage to the airways. The opinion or, yeah, I guess it's an opinion, right, of Floyd dying from a possible heart attack or anything else has somewhat been ruled out just based on the amount of uh, doctors that they've pulled in from one different fields of medicine, um, two different areas. And this is where we're talking about the cross-section. So cross-section um, is important in your juries, but it is also very important in your witnesses, especially when they're trying to reinforce um, certain ideas to the jury to say, these people are from um, this place. They're not necessarily connected. They all may have same or similar qualifications. And this is the group consensus or the common and consistent 
thought process, right? So we're looking for the common and consistent thought process that Floyd died from um, asphyxiation due to um, lack of oxygen. So that's a very big one that is kind of being reinforced right now. And then the biggest, I think, piece of this is that Chauvin faces decades in prison if convicted. But personally, I think I watched about two hours of a CNN just live streaming this on TV one day. And I've not watched any more since. I've kept up with it. But it's kind of one of those things where we sit there, we watch it, and we go, we really are watching a trial after watching somebody kill somebody else. And we've seen the video on multiple networks, on multiple social medias, et cetera. They even found that they had new body cam footage and they found that, um, and other video footage, and found that Chauvin was leaning on him for, I believe, an extra minute to an extra minute and 30 seconds than was previously recorded. And he was denied care from the off-duty EMT who testified earlier she kept asking you know can I take his pulse can I check his vitals um, please get off of him I'm an EMT like let me you're not doing this right um the police uh, one big part that I remember was someone was talking about how the police was called to report the police and that shouldn't happen you should never, because when you call the police, right, and a dispatch goes through, it's going to go through to whoever's nearest in the area, and whoever's nearest in the area gets to pick up and say, hey, I got that. So everybody restraining Floyd would have gotten a dispatch, and what were they going to do, right? Say, I got it, and that, that was just one thing that was just crazy to me, but um, overall, we're watching this whole trial, and I have resigned myself to a decision of I would prefer to think that he is not going to get convicted because then I'll be happier and surprised if he is because I am expecting him not to be. And that is not a train of thought that we should have to follow because that fully emphasizes the lack of trust we have in our justice system. I feel that. And like props to you for watching that trial because um, like, like obviously... It's not good for like mental health to be watching that kind of stuff. I remember like, I remember being in high school when Ferguson was happening. And then there was the um, trial of the officer in the shooting of Michael Brown. And I was really into that in high school. That was probably one of the things that got me more into politics was because I like saw an what to me, and especially at that time, was just such a, a gross and painful injustice in that whole trial process and the way that it was also just talked about, the way it was involved in our pop culture. It's really traumatic. It is traumatic for folks to be watching that and to know that it's such a continuous trend. But it just seems like over and over again, there's this sense of evading justice. Like, oh, it's just going to be like every other time. Um, nothing will happen. There will be no justice. There will be no change. Um, and that's a really difficult thing for, I think, especially people that are civically minded and engaged like us to like have to repeatedly face. And so like, yeah, just want to 
like keeping up with this is hard. It's so important, but it's really hard. Also, um, a lot of the information that I pulled is from um, this website that's called courttv.com. And I just pulled up because I was looking for the daily trial highlights. And what they do is they list, um, so far it looks like, you know, three to six bullet points from each day of the trial. And um, it, it hits a lot of the big stuff. Um, it talks about who testified, um, some of the big sections. One section talks about um, how Chauvin, and this is from, let's see, day six, so the 5th of April, talks about how Chauvin appeared to be on Floyd's shoulder blade and not his neck. And then a prosecutor, Stephen Schleicher, pointed out that the knee position on the shoulder appeared only after the paramedics arrived. And then each um, day review has a day six in review link to um, a video. And so I think that, I mean, I felt like I hit the jackpot when I found that one because it, it gives it very concise. It gives you um, video footage and then you're not sifting through YouTube. You're not sifting through different media sources and news sources for it. Um, this is a media source, yes, but it seems very much um, here are the facts here's what's going on. You're not listening to other people review it, I don't believe. So if there's one spot that y'all wanna, and we'll definitely um, link it in the description, but if there's one spot to like look for an overall what's going on without having the, oh, I gotta catch it live, or, oh, I need to not be listening to all the commentators, um, or I don't want commercials, pick your pick. Um, I think this is a really good spot just for, you know, getting the big stuff of what, what's happened each day, but don't bring yourself out on it. Um, I remember being just so burned out this summer and like depressed and like traumatized over just social media being flooded and TV being flooded with everything that was going on with the protests and the marches and with the continued shootings and all the just violence that was happening. But it's tiring and um, please be mindful of that. If you're watching the trial and you're keeping up with other injustices that have been happening, um, that you might not recognize it like in the moment, but it, it does impact you. Um, it's impacted me in a manner that like, I feel bad when I just ignore some head like headlines that are like, this person has been shot or, 13 year old boy shot and I'm just like I can't I can't leave that when I see a heading or a headline again and I'm like okay what is happening here um or brief snippets Instagram snippets I can I feel like I digest those better but it is harsh and heavy on your body and your brain and your mental health to just always be consuming depressing content and then to just kind of have it instilled in your brain that like the justice system is not going to do anything about this and the outcome of this trial of Minnesota v. Derek Chauvin is going to set precedent for a lot of things and that almost makes it worse because then you think of well if, if he doesn't get convicted then who cares about all the other officers doing whatever they want it tells them I can do this and I'm not going to go to jail for it Oh yeah. I think that that precedent aspect is one of the scariest parts for me. The outcome of this trial, it's gonna it's gonna be big. So Can you imagine 
being in court and hearing them go, you know, we're talking about Minnesota v. Chauvin as a precedent. Why should my client be convicted of this if Chauvin wasn't? Like, that sounds horrifying. And I think that'll be a huge, huge injustice to so many people, communities, um, people who are alive and who have passed to say, you're allowed to do this. And it's not, it's not saying that they're allowed to, but it's saying that they're, it's not saying that they aren't. What is it? It's like a slap on the wrist type of thing. Yeah. We're going to give you a, you lost your job, you know, you've kind of been discreet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that even like broadened the theme more. That was something that like back in the fall, I talked to um, Professor Ceci Lopez, who is the law diversity and justice department head in Fairhaven. And the point of our conversation was I was just doing a video and asking like, you know, why do we elect judges? Why are judges on our ballot? What's so important about that? Because I know like even for myself, that wasn't something that I paid attention to um, in the past. And I think a lot of folks tend to just go like, oh, if there's one, I'll pick that one. And if there's two, I might just skip it and not worry about it. Um, And so I just wanted to share Professor Lopez's thoughts on, you know, what it means when we are electing folks to positions that ultimately have the ability to set these precedents. The idea has always been to provide for the people to be able to elect, you know, the, the, the judges, for people to have a voice and decide, you know, where we are going to appoint um, to, to represent us in the courts. And um, that's, I mean, I think that that, that is the, the, the main um, desire, objective behind that. Um, it, it is a lot of work for the for the judges uh, to, in addition to do their work, start doing a lot of campaigning. And as we've seen in past elections, it can be very politicized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the kind of language uh, that gets uh, shared or challenged, uh, the, the way a challenge comes up, you know, based on a person's identity rather than their their record sometimes comes to light. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's a lot to ask our judges to do, but that's the system that we have. So one thing that I really took away from that conversation was that as much as I watch these big broadcasted court trials on these big topics that are going to change history and set precedents and are very emotional to the American public and in particular our Black communities. While that's something on the grand scale to surely like pay attention to, you know, to some extent I'm just this like 21 year old chick in Washington. I am going to have so little effect on that and it makes me feel so powerless. But ways that I can get involved is to really pay attention to similar conversations like this, but on a local level as well. 
we in Washington state, at least we elect local judges, we elect state judges, they have often the power to make constitutional rulings to decide cases like this, um, just maybe not on the same national broad media scale. If we know that this is a systemic issue that people of color are being killed by our policing mechanisms, surely it is an issue in our area and listener wherever you are in your area as well. Um, and so how do we get people who are going to have that racial context into attorney positions or as judges? How are we going to get people to start setting precedents that do strengthen our justice system rather than just leave countless people in fear of their own country that is supposed to be just and take care of them. Think on that, my friends. Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention to your local and state elections. That's what everything comes back to <laughs> on our executive order. But actually, like, pay attention to these conversations, like, pay attention to community members who are saying, hey, we have a problem with police and we don't feel safe. Um, and see what we can do at home to just like take care of our people all right everybody thank you for listening in to our executive order jude and i have had so much fun um giving you today's episode on jury duty and the chauvin trial and overall you know how we think impartiality is going in our system um please tune in to our episode for next week and this has been chelsea and jude And we want you to have an amazing week.